Welcome everybody to Recovery Machine, episode 21. Today we're interviewing Cassidy. She's an RN from the Lower Mainland. And Corey's going to ask a few questions and get to know her and we'll go from there. Absolutely. Yeah. Hello, Nathan. Hello, Cassidy. Thanks for coming on and joining us for a conversation today. Thanks for having me. It's nice to have you. I, I personally really enjoy anytime we can talk to someone with uh, with lived experience from a healthcare profession within our, our region. It just kind of helps to fill in so many different types of, of individuals and, and different stories that may be helpful for our listeners. So it's great to talk to you. Just for our listeners, maybe if you want to start by telling us where you come from, um, what do you do for fun? What's your, what, is, what is a day in the life when you're not working first? And then we'll get into your profession. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm Cassidy. I'm a registered, as you guys said, a registered nurse in the um, lower mainland. Um, I live in the Surrey North Delta area. And when I'm not working, I'm generally with my dogs. I'm very outdoorsy, uh, whether it's camping or rock climbing. Um, I'm always like, like to be outside or trying something new. I love food. And yeah, I don't know. I think that's, that's pretty much sums me up for a day outside of the kind of work environment. Um, yeah, outside, I would say. Awesome. So uh, what got you into nursing and about how long have you been a, a registered nurse for? So I got into nursing, I was just about done my bachelor's of science in biology. And I couldn't decide what I was going to do after I wanted to travel. I wanted to help people. Um, I loved patho. And I remember one of my friends was like, or and I, I wanted to teach as well. And I remember one of my friends was like, why don't you go into nursing? And I was like, oh, that's so funny that you say that because like my aunt's a nurse, my mom's a nurse, my stepsister's a nurse. My sister was going into med school at the time. Like there's healthcare prof professionals all over my family. And I was like, oh, that's a very interesting idea because you can really, it opens so many doors for you. And I was like, oh, for sure. And uh, I applied to BCIT uh, and I got in. And I graduated from BCIT um, in 2014, and I started nursing as a med surge nurse. I did inpatient and outpatient oncology for four or five years. Um, and then in 2019, I transitioned into eMERGE nursing. I took the emergency program. And then since then, I've been working as an ER nurse and have been floating up to the ICU department kind of sometimes when they need me. Um, and I'm currently in the middle of taking the ICU program. So that I've been nursing, yeah, since 2014. So I guess eight, eight-ish years now um, as an RN with multiple different areas of kind of practice. As a non-nurse, could you explain uh, to us non-nurses what the, uh, the first couple of things you said, you're a med, what was the... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> uh, med surgeon are so medical, surgical, so uh, an area in nursing where you don't need to kind of specialize after nursing school. It's kind of an area of nursing where um, you it's a, a general floor where you can go to work. So it's low, low acuity, people coming out of surgery that are, you know, are pretty well go to these kind of floors. Yeah, it's generally just low acuity and your, your general medical floors with no kind of extra training required to work there. Okay. So probably where lots of students would start. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. That was my starting place as well. So Cassidy, since 2014, we all know how much the world has changed since then. What changes within the profession of nursing could you identify off the top of your head? Oh my gosh. That's, that's a big question. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. a, a lot. The, I mean, when I started nursing, 
uh, I mean, my eyes were probably a little bit more like kind of had blinders on, but I honestly don't remember the burnout being anywhere what it is today personally or from, from coworkers. Like I don't remember going to work and everybody being like, I'd rather jump off a bridge than coming to work where as you know, people would come back from a vacation when they, when I started working and they'd be relaxed, they'd be, you know, ready to come back to work. And I find today people come back and they, you know, they still got that glazed look in their eyes and they're still not ready to come back. Acuity's gone up. So this level of sickness in patients. Um, so our numbers are so much higher than they used to be, which means our ratios as a nurse. So we typically have more patients per nurses. And then with that burnout is less nurses. So your ratios go even higher. And it's just, I find when I, I found when I started nursing, I was proud to say I was a nurse. Um, and today I still enjoy the profession, but I can't honestly say I'm proud to be a nurse anymore. It's just the hatred that I get from, now I shouldn't say hatred, but like just the, the, the pandemic was terrible. Like it was, it was super hard. And, you know, we went from being from heroes to, to, to not heroes. Um, so I, I'd say the esteem of the profession and the, the ownership of having a good profession is gone. Like, I just don't, I don't feel that anymore. You know, pay used to be okay pay is not okay anymore mm. um everything used to be better i honestly i, I find i just it, i i don't know when it specifically it happened like i do think the downfall kind of happened before the pandemic but the pandemic kind of just kicked it into hyperdrive and really exposed all these kind of holes in our healthcare system it really opened up um a lot of problems and created a lot a lot more problems so yeah i everything's changed i don't know i don't know really what stayed the same <laughs> <laughs> I think you're bang on with the uh, assessment of how things have kind of trended down. Uh, for me, I look at uh, like 2008, the Great Recession, that time period, right after then, it seemed that everything, be, there started to be kind of this trend of cutting corners um, from funding that was was normally coming down. All of a sudden, we were, there was less funding. There was kind of things started to be done in a way that was different. And it, I think that's when things started to loosen up as far as the medical system in general was, was concerned. And then um, when, when the pandemic came along, it, it made us much less prepared for such an event. And here we are, I, it seems to be accelerating. But uh, one quick thing, uh, you mentioned acuity going up. So you're, you're, you're saying that the general the baseline level of sickness of your patients or maybe the amount of care that they require is increasing. Uh, what is causing that? Or is that you're looking at that from the pandemic standpoint? Uh, I just uh, find since when I first started nursing that we're just getting more sick people all the time. Whereas as an emerge nurse, when I started even four years ago, it just didn't seem to have as many sick people all the time. And I don't, I don't honestly know what's mm -hmm. causing that. I don't know if I work at a hospital where people tend to come more or if it's because people push things off for the pandemic and weren't taking care of themselves um, or if it's lack of GP access and things have been brushed under and everything's just kind of spiraling at the same time. I don't, I don't really know, but like the, during the pandemic, obviously we saw so many sick people because of COVID. Um, but I, I find even after the pandemic, we're just seeing a, a lot of sick people. I mean, even just this last heat wave, we saw so many sick people with just the heat wave, but outside of that, I just find like, just elder people that have a lot of comorbidities or just they're just getting sicker. And I don't, I don't mm. really know why I, I feel that there's more sick people, but it's just what I've experienced when I'm working. 
I, I think you're right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not working as a nurse any longer, but I, I could say over the last um, maybe five years, even, I think the thing that I observed was that, that the standard of what acuity, the standard of acuity changed too. That so as critical care areas filled up, as ICUs filled up, as critical care wards and cardiac wards filled up, they the system itself had to sort of be become a bit more flexible with what was an acceptable level of acuity mm. for a medical floor too. So I remember patients that you know when I first started my career that never would have gone to a medical floor, they were starting to just be bend that rule a little bit, and and medical nurses were taking on some pretty sick people, at least in, in the areas that I was working. Yeah, Did, that uh, I, I'm seeing that here too in. Uh, just locally here in Kelowna, there's there's been a couple protocol changes, I guess, and they're not specific to that hospital, but they're provincial protocol changes that basically make it so that it's it's more difficult to fall into uh, a spot where you would normally receive free medical care for uh, like iron is a good example, iron infusions, that uh, the requirements to to meet that treatment protocol have changed such that basically you have to be in pretty rough shape before you can now go into a hospital and get get an infusion and i'm sure that's happening in other places too as they try to you know do more with less i really like how you said that though cassidy about how the last couple of years just it it exposed the some of the issues that were already there it created new issues but it created enough tension on the system just to expose or shine a light on those specific issues for sure so Moving forward, Cassidy, you, um, you've just completed a three-year monitoring contract. So first of all, a, a huge congratulations for that <laughs> accomplishment and relief. And we'll get into all of the other things that you must feel as a result of that. Um, can you tell us a little bit, go back a little bit, though, and tell us what led you to have to go on a monitoring contract? I've written some notes because I think this is going to be a pretty emotional question for me. So um, bear with me. But uh, yeah, I feel that. Um, so I was diagnosed with a substance use disorder um, in 2019. And it was, I feel like a lifelong journey to kind of get there. I had a pretty unstable childhood. My parents kind of split when I was really young and we moved around a lot. I had a really, um, we moved like schools, we moved houses. Um, I was exposed to sexual and physical abuse from varying family members. Um, and so growing up was just not stable. It was, it was a tough one. And, uh, during that process, that was, to me, it was normal. Like I was just like, this is, this is what life is. Like, this is just what everyone experiences. I didn't know what was wrong. And so I feel like that's kind of probably where my addictive I like to call it my addictive personality kind of stemmed from. I found when I was a kid, like looking back, no matter what it was, I just like, I got really engorged in it. Like if it was a TV show or type of food or a hobby, I just was very addicted to it. And I feel like that was because that was a coping mechanism for me. Um, looking back, like that was to get so engorged in something, it shut everything else off. It was it was really what I looking back was the only way that I could make that hurt go away. Um, so I tended to fall into these kind of patterns that would kind of take over my life. So I guess 
one of the things that I found after going through um, counseling is that we all have this thing called um, an inner child. And my inner child is very insecure and very full of shame and has a lot of feelings of inadequacies at all, all times. So again, why my addictive personality kind of probably spiked up was because as a child, I didn't know how to kind of deal with any of those emotions. So I didn't really know or acknowledge any of these things until I actively sought help. It took some time to do the work and find out that that's what I experienced and that's why my path kind of went the way it went. That's by no ways to say that I'm cured and my inner child is gone because she is still there and she always kind of bubbles up at all these inopportune times. But so a couple months prior to my diagnosis, uh, I would say I was in a pretty kind of unstable place. I uh, was in a pretty vulnerable relationship that I think because of my childhood and because of the moving and the kind of things that I went through, I have a, a trust issue problem. And so I never really opened up or talked to a lot of people. Um, and that particular relationship made me very vulnerable. It was a, a very long distance relationship. And I, I don't think I was ever truly vulnerable kind of before that relationship. And um, I didn't really know how to deal with it. And it was kind of like just a very exposed and raw place to be. And so substances and kind of partying had been kind of a go-to for me for a while in this point in my life like they I was already partying and I was already using and drinking quite as a partying thing but it was becoming kind of more more constant and then after that kind of I found myself in that vulnerable place very often I decided to make a career change and I went into the emergency program for school and decided to advance my career and so now I was in a full-time school program where expectations got really high, acuity got really high, and my inner child's just screaming, inadequacy, shame, you're not good enough. And I just, and then my relationship outside was just like, it was good, it was a healthy relationship, but it just made me feel so vulnerable. I just, looking back, I, yeah, it's hard to pinpoint, but I think those are my two catalysts. And I just started using and drinking way more frequently to the point where I didn't, I didn't know it's so it's funny being a healthcare professional and being exposed to addiction. I have addiction in my family. It doesn't matter how educated you are on it. When you are in the addiction, you can't see it. You're, mm -hmm. you're blind to it. Like you, you don't, you, you just, it's yeah. It's so hard to look back and see where I was and being like, how could I not notice that? But, um, there I was, uh, I was using more often than I wasn't. I was drinking more often than I wasn't and calling in sick for work all the time. And then there was one, one weekend where I, I remember reaching out and asking somebody that I, I need to help. And I remember them just being like, Oh, I, I don't have time right now. Like, oh, I'll talk to you tomorrow. And I don't know why that I look back and think that that was my catalyst and that was just kind of the, the tipping point for me. Yeah. Thanks. Um, Can you, you were saying that someone, re someone you'd reached out to someone. Was it a person at work or like a friend or. It was, it was my partner at the time. It okay. was uh yeah, it was my partner. And I, I just remember saying I, I like, I needed to talk and it was kind of, it wasn't brushed off in any ways. Like this is not a him thing. This was a me thing, taking it 
just the wrong way. And um, it, it was like, no, we can talk tomorrow. And I just remember it being a catalyst and the inadequacies and the inner child were just not happy. Like they, everything just kind of boiled down. And I just went off, went off the edge and uh, decided that I didn't want to live anymore. And I tried to drink and use myself. In, I tried to kill myself. I didn't want to live anymore. And the addictions had just brought me to that point where that was, that was what, what I wanted to do. And um, I don't remember this weekend very well, but it's been pieced together by friends and family. Um, I guess I, in a stupor, I reached out to somebody else and they came and watched me because my dad, my sister and my best friend who are like just my core group of people were all away. Uh, so one of the other friends came and I guess babysat me for 24 hours. And then I, I guess some of my family and friends showed up. I don't really remember it, but um, they tried to help me. And then I, I guess I promised them I was going to be good. I don't remember any of this. And then um, they left again. And I woke up, I think two days later, although I was probably doing stuff and there was just, there's glass on the ground. There's glass in my foot. There was, like I hadn't showered in I don't know how long and I was a mess. Like I was, I've never been that way. I was just in a terrible spot. Um, my best friend was there and my sister was there. And I just remember laying on the ground because I couldn't do anything but want to die. And I just looked at my sister and I was like, I need help. <laughs> I just need help. And so she, she said she, we figured out we would find help. And that's when I um, decided to go to a treatment program never asked for help in my life we live in such a like a strong-willed society we're asking for help or where I was raised was you know asking for help is kind of a weakness you're not supposed to do it and I feel like that habit for me needs to change like asking for help is such a strong point to have as a human um so I finally did it and I went to treatment for six weeks best thing that ever happened to me I loved my treatment it was a really good facility and it was just intense therapy for six weeks and good therapy. It was one-on-one sessions. It was group sessions. It was, I mean, there's awful parts of it too. It's just like, it's like going to high school again. Like there's a lot of drama as well, but I didn't realize how much I needed therapy from my childhood. And so I self-admitted myself to treatment and I got help and I felt so much better. And then when I was leaving treatment, um, the gentleman that owned the facility told me that I should, I should go to my union and tell them what I had done because that's what an honest person does. And I was so vulnerable at this point and knew nothing about anything in healthcare and addiction. Um, and so I listened because I just didn't know, I didn't know what else to do. And, you know, they said it was the right thing. So I reported to my union um and that's when shit hit the fan <laughs> it's terrible I thought it I had to see an addictions doctor to tell me I had a problem which I, I knew I had a problem like I walked that path myself and I sought help and I went to treatment and I got on the right path I wouldn't say I got better because the six weeks isn't enough to to heal a lot but it is definitely enough to kind of push you in the right direction to get going um and that's kind of when I got seen. They told me I had an, uh, an, a substance use disorder. Um, and then I got signed into this three-year contract. And I think, I think that answers your question. 
And and then some, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for telling yeah. us your story, Cassidy. So just uh, to clarify, because I believe that the, these details are important, you decided to tell your union because you felt that you or you'd talk to this gentleman and, and come to the conclusion that it was the right thing to do. Were you, were you planning on going back to work as a nurse right away or were you going to take some time? Like what was, what kind of, I'm interested to know what you thought of your, yourself at that time before the powers that be interceded yeah i mean i i definitely thought i would go back and be a nurse like that was in my head i didn't i didn't know when i definitely didn't think i was going to leave treatment and go back to the bedside the next day but it was it was definitely my plan was to go back into bedside bedside nursing but i mean did you consider taking some time off to yourself to continue you know healing from this process or you know what would that have looked like or do I, you know? I don't, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I like ever planned in my head to, to take some time off. I, I definitely probably, I think I, I don't remember the date, but I think there's a little bit of summer left. Um, so I was probably going to take the summer off. I think it was like midway through July. Um, I think it was July 15th when I signed the contract, actually, the three-year contract. So um, I was probably in my head, was probably planning to take the rest of the summer off and then go back afterwards. Um but I can't honestly say for sure what was kind of going on at that time. There's a lot, there's a lot going on at that time. Yeah. So how did that feel when the, when all of a sudden you disclose this to your union and <clears throat> here comes the monitoring contract. I assume that your employer was informed in some way. Yeah. My employer was informed. Um, I essentially had a meeting with the union and they, they said, you know, uh, you have to get an IME um, assessment done and then you have to sign this pro. And then once I had the IME, they showed you this contract. And then once the contract was signed, that contract has to go to your employer um, and they need to be in the loop of what goes on as well. And it felt terrible. It felt, it felt awful. Like it felt like, uh, yeah, I just felt like I was already in such a vulnerable place. And then to be exposed to all these other people, this felt like more vulnerable, even though they don't disclose what you're doing, you still have, it's it still, it still feels like you're being exposed. Yeah. The way those contracts are written up, basically they might as well state on there that you have no confidentiality because once you sign it's this physician and anybody, this physician feels is, is going to be needing to see your records or, uh, you know, this agency, etc. And it's just, they don't, they don't actually define names that will be privy to your information it's just groups of people right yeah and uh yeah that can be pretty uh overwhelming when you're that raw i mean i don't know how you know some people come back from treatment and it sounds like you had a really good experience where you you learned that you maybe you had some things that you needed to work on that you weren't aware of but you were still probably in a like you said, very raw, vulnerable state of mind. And mm -hmm. those types of, I, to me, I take them as a, it's a violation of your confidentiality. And th that's the way I felt anyway. I just, if they couldn't define who specifically was going to need my records, then I didn't think that that was uh, binding or allowable. Yeah. 
Did it feel like it sort of popped a pin in all of the hard work you had just done? Like to have to go back to an addictions doctor and go through all this stuff when you'd just done a, a really successful therapeutic six weeks, did it kind of like, kind of pull the rug out from under you? Yeah, hundred percent it did. It, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of people that have gone through this program through the professional accountability meeting that we do. And I've never met somebody else that walked the same path as me that self-admitted themselves into treatment and then also got sent to this three-year program. It usually is kind of the other way around. People kind of get found out about and then are told they have to go to treatment and then kind of go through the monitoring contract. So I definitely felt when I um, was told and found out about all of this that the rug was pulled out under me because I did feel like I had kind of taken a step forward um, and not saying that I'm you know, stronger than anybody else, whatever, my story is completely different. It's everyone walks their own journey. But I definitely felt like it was, you know, all done for nothing. Like it was, you know, it doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter how much effort you put in. It doesn't matter that you've you tried to do this by your like, that you tried to get help like this. You here you go, you get to go into this box. This is your box. And this is your three year plan. This is no if ands or buts. Your story doesn't matter is essentially how you I felt when I walked out of it. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds uh, sounds about right. Did they give you any credit or was there any discussion about your previous treatment during your IME? Or did, did uh, that just, you know, did they say, were they digging? I, I asked the question because I'm interested in, in whether or not uh, an IME physician would look at things that may have been beneficial. I mean, maybe you went to a treatment center and you, and you say, you know what, this type of CBT uh, therapy really helped me out with this specific problem. And that could then tailor where you're growing. I mean, we know right now in reality, that's not how it happens, but was there any attempt to, you know, kind of feel that out? I mean, I don't particularly remember verbatim what happened in the IME assessment. The only thing that I can think of is my three-year contract, which is the same as everybody else. I did not have a waiting period between going to treatment and starting work. My, my turnaround time was very short. A lot of people had to wait in a very extended amount of time to go back when I was able to go back right away. I didn't have a waiting period. And then my three-year contract also wasn't signed off to start when returning to work where as I know, a lot of people who get put in this three-year contract, they have a waiting period before they go back to work. So some people wait a couple of years and that three-year contract doesn't start until they're back at work. So that three-year contract actually turns into a five or six-year contract. Whereas that box was never checked on my IME. Um, so my three-year contract started when I signed it. Uh, so those are the only two kind of points that I look at and be like, maybe there was something taken into consideration. Mm but that was definitely never stated to me by the gentleman. And part of me is like, I think he just forgot to check that box. <laughs> like, I, I don't think it was like a, a pat on the shoulder. He definitely never said anything about being like, good job. I don't ever remember feeling good in that assessment. I remember feeling belittled and full of shame during yeah. that assessment, but I don't remember particulars. Hmm. And did they, they didn't recommend that you go to another treatment center though, did they? No. No, okay. Well, at least, uh, at least it wasn't that crazy. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, yeah, I've heard very terrible things about some of the treatment places that the they they like to send people. Um, mm. And uh, I didn't. I had a good treatment experience, so. Well, that's good. What? Yeah, I know that's not the same for everybody. 
Was it one that was in BC? Yeah, it was, uh, it was on the island. It was the Cedars treatment okay. facility. Yeah. Just outside. Of, I believe it's outside of Duncan or in Duncan. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know a lot about that one, but, uh, I've yeah. heard very good things though. Yeah. Yeah. It was like little, really good things. Yeah. yeah. Little cabins in the wood. You had walks after and before meals. So you're outside, which I know other treatment facilities, I just don't even have that option. And yeah, I, when I was there, it was really good. I am. I'm not sure it's still the same. Um, I would like to hope so. But my experience, I even went back there a couple of times afterwards for like alum meetings because I, I, I missed it. I've, I've been there in a very long time. But yeah, I did go back. So Cassidy, you sort of answered this next question a few minutes ago when you said that, you know, once you went to the ER, that really heightened some of that, your, you know, your inner child was sort of screaming when, when you got into that ER program and getting into the work ER work itself that mm-hmm. uh, it stirred up a lot of feeling. But I guess the way I will ask you this is as you continued on and went back to work, what was that like to go back now post-treatment? Did that environment still stir up some of those same feelings or, or was it, did it look like a different place after your, your treatment program? I felt when I was going back that it was going to be I don't know. I, I, it was so hard to pinpoint whether it was the nursing or the childhood or the relationship or all three. That was kind of the catalyst. And I definitely had insecurities going back to work because I was a brand new eMERGE nurse at this point with very little experience going back in a very vulnerable state of mind. And I thought it was going to be harder than it was, but it it wasn't in the very beginning. And this was pre-pandemic. Um, I felt like I had the support in the sense that they gave me six, six or eight, eight weeks of GRTW. Uh, so gradual return to work. So I was always supernumerary, which means I was an extra nurse. So for those six or eight weeks, I was, I was not solely responsible for anything or anyone at any given time. So I definitely had, was able to ease back in, in that sense. So that allowed me to refine my footing as a nurse um, in the eMERGE department and feel that I would be able to kind of journey a little bit further. Uh, so I don't feel that when I went back that I was as unstable as I thought I would be. Like, I really do think I, I needed therapy and I needed a lot of therapy. Um, and it, it had kind of really helped me kind of go back in the right direction, if that makes sense. It does. Uh, I, I wondered what your opinion was there, Corey. To, to me, it, it looks like you had some, uh, you know, some stuff from your childhood that maybe was uh, just the way that you were raised. You know, you weren't addressing it or processing it at all. You were kind of just going along. It'll, you, I also hear a lot of things that uh, sound a lot like the rhetoric I have in my head uh, a lot of the time, which is uh, like perfectionist based talk where barely anything I do is ever good enough. There's always this, I mean, I've gotten a lot better at it over time, but it sounds like maybe you're pretty hard on yourself that way as well. And I, I think that maybe if you have those kind of issues in the background and depending on which way, you know, you, you said that you were partying, but then you sort of started crossing a line where you realize that maybe you weren't partying to have fun, you were partying to kind of cope. And to me, it it, it sounds like, because you, you look like, from what I've seen and, and what I've heard from talking to you, it seems like you like being a nurse. You, 
you seem to enjoy your job. You sound like you're good at it. You, you know, you, you travel all over the place and you, you make use of the profession as best you can. And I don't know, you know, if there's any drug use that was associated with specific things that were only accessible there, but it doesn't sound like it. So maybe it was uh, like, like you said, maybe there was just some work that needed to be done personally. That's how I see it. What, what do you think, Corey, being a nurse as well, or a former nurse? I think, and this is why it's such a, so great to have Cassidy here with us is that it's, it's unique to everyone. And for, for me, it became, the environment became so enmeshed in my psychology and my own reaction to the environment and, and my inner child too, and my need to kind of cope and soothe myself. But it's not, it's not like that for every single person. And, and I think there are many, many people who we meet, including people who have, who have done the show with us, who love their job and who it really is a fulfilling, gratifying experience for them. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to be sort of highlighting that and highlighting an example where there is a, there is a light at the end of the tunnel that you can get back to your, your profession. So maybe I'll ask you this question then, Cassidy, what does continuing on now, what does ER nursing do for you? Like, what does that, what part of you does that fill up and, and where do you get your, um, your satisfaction from there? Yeah, I find, I find ER nursing doesn't fill me up anymore. I find <laughs> it's, um, it's very hard place to work right now. Um, because it's, I love, emer- I love emerge nursing for emerge for a portion of emerge nursing. I love really sick patients and I love, um, when, I, I mean, I don't love that a person is sick, but I love taking care of a sick person. The part of emergency nursing that I don't like is the emotional abuse that we get all the time um, from frequent flyers, which are, you know, people that come to emerge very often for non-emergence um, kind of situations, which sometimes they're looking for a place to sleep or a meal to eat, which is obviously not what the emergency department is for um, and are a lot, a lot of the time very belittling and with very high expectations or the other side of eMERGE nursing where, you know, there's not enough GPs in the community. So we have all of that influx of people coming in that want care now and they want to be seen now. And we don't have the ability to do that. We were not created as an emergency department to facilitate those types of people, whether it, whichever group it is, which both groups of those people need help and they need access to the things they need. And it's unfortunate that they need to come to the ER to kind of fulfill those needs where they should be able to get those somewhere else in our, in our community. Um, so that's part of eMERGE nursing has become really draining lately because it's becoming increasingly more problematic. So I've actually been finding myself working on other units outside of emergency medicine um, just to give myself a break from it because it's, it's very draining and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fill you up anymore because it is no matter what you do or how much you do in the emergency department I work in, you never feel like you make a difference because you either leave the shift uh, as a triage nurse with like 54 people to still be seen or you start the shift with that many and everybody's already mad at you because they want to be seen sooner. And it's, you know, there's no movement in the hospital. So that's really hard because the eMERGE gets the brunt, the brunt of that backfill everywhere in the hospital because we have to accommodate all those people and more people come through the door. So we're expanding into places that we don't actually have places. So from that side, it's really draining. Um, so you don't, I don't tend to have a lot of good, good shifts in emergency, um, which is why I try and work there less and less often. So I find myself picking up on our high acuity unit or our ICU unit uh, to try and 
still give me that passion for nursing because I still do love nursing. I, I love, you know, when some patients are really nice to you, I love giving bed baths. I love being able to take care of people. I do. I do love that. And but emergency medicine is not allowing us to do that anymore. You're not, sometimes you don't even have time to bedpan somebody and you literally have to let them go to the bathroom in the bed because you have so many patients and they just are like, you're a terrible person. And I'm like, I feel like a terrible person, but this is, this is what your government has us working with. Like we, we can't do anything past what we are given the needs to do. And that's as healthcare professionals, we're kind of just left to kind of deal with the brunt of that. Yeah. I, uh, I work in a pharmacy that's attached to a walk-in clinic and uh, with the, in this, I mean, everywhere in BC right now, I think we're well over a million people who don't have access to a, to a family physician. This has been going on for a while. We're losing doctors on a fairly at a fairly st- steady rate, but it never fails to amaze me. And and this isn't everybody, but there's there's a type of person out there who is living in a world where they believe that they're just entitled to such services and entitled to see a doctor at at such and such a time without a delay and these people because of the backlog and the like we open up our doors and we we have a lineup we open it up and are, we're at max capacity within a couple hours and then we're turning people away and those people have two choices they got to go to urgent care if there's any room left there or else they're at emerge and I look around and I see a quarter of them who might qualify for actually needing to see a doctor today. The rest are kind of looking for refills on prescriptions or things that aren't, I wouldn't classify as a, a big enough problem to be there. Uh, this is just a general statement, obviously, but to speak to the, the way you're being treated, I can, I feel that a little bit. I mean, I see how I my MOAs are treated and I, I, I know how I get treated some days is not good. And I get that people are sick and hurting and frustrated because they can't see a doctor, but people need to maybe stop and think a little bit about what we're, what is happening right now with our country. And this is not the Canada of 20 years ago. That time has passed. So if we want to hold on to whatever remnant of our, free healthcare service that we have, we should probably be taking care of the people who take care of us. And the ones who do that the most are nurses. So please, everybody, take a, take a deep breath and uh, have some patience. We're all doing our best. You, you know, Cassidy, I think just two things. One of the secrets that I think you really unlocked in, your, in terms of your success is that you take breaks from that environment and and go and try different things and work mm. in different units and do some traveling and travel nursing. Um, if I could look back at my own career with, with a regret, and I have a few, one of them would be that I didn't mix it up and, and say, you know, have the insight to say, okay, I need to step away and go and work on this unit for a period of time uh, just to keep myself fresh and have a new perspective and, and see something new and not be locked in. And, and I had all sorts of reasons for staying locked in, but I, I think there's so many of the really great nurses with longevity are the ones who mix it up and, and work in different spots. The other thing I think is, and Nathan, I, I agree entirely with everything you just said there. And I, I think if we can implore people to understand the level of, of violence, and it is violence that, that um, healthcare workers and nurses endure 
on sometimes a daily or hourly basis. And that if it's things that you can't imagine being said to someone have been said to most nurses. And I think probably statistically more ER nurses than, than in other units, just because there's such a heightened level of stress and emotion and, and pressure there. But um, I, I get it. Yeah. So let's, let's move forward a little bit in the conversation and, and talk about monitoring. Cause you have, I know you have some, have had a, some unique and interesting experiences with monitoring that range from inappropriate and challenging to well beyond that. Um, so I guess just first generally, what, what was your experience like for the three years of monitoring and having to, I assume you were doing uh, twice monthly urine tests yeah. or was it a bit different? Yeah, my, my monitoring was 24 tests a year. And they said, you know, it could be anywhere from one to four times a month. And my drug testing was twice every month. And then I would have intermittent hair tests if I went away for a weekend or went away for longer. Um, even though the testing could be two weeks apart, if you schedule time off, they, they would want to give hair tests. I hated hair tests. It just crossed some kind of boundary that I didn't know existed just you know even three years into the contract or two and a half years like when I was getting close to the three years with not a scratch on my my record um you know they're still still cutting off my hair and charging hundreds of dollars so there was no kind of never that I expected leniency but you know when you started monitoring people kind of talked about the longer you're with your monitor you know you can build a rapport it's not true I had like six or seven monitors so I never was able to build a rapport mm -hmm. and even even if I had the same monitor, I honestly don't think it would have made a difference because I think they've got boxes to check off. It's and you know that was the boxes they had to check off. So doesn't matter who or what you've done. Um, you're, there's kind of no kind of bending. Um, the rules are what they are. So yeah, it was two times a month, and it was they don't let you check in. Do you have a question, Nathan? I do. Just uh, <laughs> I'm curious as to how many hair tests because it. I mean. I want people to understand that these things are 600 to a thousand dollars a pop, whereas a standard urine, you know, with a little bit of timing will do the same thing for a couple hundred. Also, it's a, a, it's a violating procedure. It feels wrong. Uh, and that's, it felt wrong to me. And I'm a man. I, I, you know, I don't, I imagine maybe it feels a little different for a woman, whatever the case, do you remember how many times they made you do that? you would think the insurance company would even complain. Like it's very expensive. Uh, yes, it was very expensive. I don't have a record of how many times I was hair tested, but off the top of my head, I want to say at least five times. Five times wow. in three years? At least five times. Wow. Holy. Man. I, I, at cost to you. Yes, but I am with a health authority that covers the costs. Okay. to a certain degree. Yeah. But if I was not with this health authority, then the costs come out of your pocket. And yeah. So I don't know if that encouraged them to do more hair tests. I, oh. I don't know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm not so going to get riled up here, but uh, I'll save that energy for later. But uh, wow, that is, I've never heard of that before or seen that before. I don't know. Cause I, I do a lot of like, outdoorsy things like we were talking about like I do a lot of backcountry camping um so if you want to go away on a vacation in this monitoring contract you have to request time off and it's or sorry you have to request away time and that has to be 
three days in advance if it's only two days. And if it's more than you're going away for more than three days, it has to be two weeks in advance. And it's not time off. They find out where you're going and they will find you a monitoring site close to wherever you're going. So because I did a lot of backcountry stuff, I was out of cell service. So if I ever wanted to agree to do those things that what I think are what keeps me sane and sober, um, not this monitoring program that actually pushed me to the brink of insanity most times mm. um, to accept to go and do these things that kept me sane. I had to agree to getting my hair chopped off mm-hmm. because I was going out of testing sites because I wasn't able to be tested or check in because I was out of cell service. So, I mean, on one side, yay, they let me do it. But on the other side, I had to pay for it on the latter side. So. Wow. And what was your experience with, with having to give urine samples like? Um, so you have to log in then morning of, you find out whether um, you're up for testing or not. So I worked solely night shifts for the three years because I simply refused to leave midway through a day shift to go pee in a cup for somebody because they tell you, you get to keep, you know, your confidentiality, but you're leaving halfway through a shift for two hours. And then you come back and like, but you don't have to tell anybody. And I'm like, what (laughs) you're leaving for two hours like everybody knows that something's wrong so um there's two places that i would get tested at if i was in between night shifts i'd send them my schedule and i got tested at a site that was close to me and then if i wasn't in between night shifts um i got tested at it at their their facility and the reason for that was the gentleman who's testing close to me only does it by scheduled appointments so on my days that I wasn't in between night shifts, I, I liked the leniency to be able to go into their facility because you could go in at drop-in times. So I did, could, if I was going hiking, I could go there super early. The guy by my house, super nice, made me feel like a decent human being. You know, he he was very approachable, non-judgmental, had no bad experiences with this guy. And then there was the testing facility that was owned by my monitoring company who, I don't know, don't know if they like have zero people skills, but they would like wear gloves. They would stand back from you. They would treat you like you were going to, I don't know, pee on them and they were going to get some kind of infection from you. Like, I don't know what they were thinking, but they just made you feel super terrible. And so I hated, I hated going there. Every time I had to go there, I was dragging my feet because they were just, they're always so rude to you, you know, show me your ID, show me this. And there's never like any kind of nice conversations. Um, And I did have, a third testing person that I went to. Um, and this was a, a mobile guy. So there's three testing people that I would go see. And this, this one gentleman was very, I always gave me weird feelings and he was always really weird. And I would hear weird things about him in our group meetings as well, just kind of pushing boundaries and crossing boundaries and making people feel or he, him being inappropriate. And I heard those things and I was like, that's weird. Cause like, He's never done those things to me, but I've gotten weird vibes. And then this was one of the people that generally did my hair testing um, that would cut my hair off. And when I went there for my last testing with him, I remember we ne- we never had a report. Like we would, he was nice. He would talk, we'd say hi, whatever. And then he was like, oh, you're still in monitoring. And I was like, yeah, like I'm here. <laughs> I wouldn't be here if I wasn't in monitoring. He's like, and I was like, but I'm almost done. Like I have two months left. And he's like, well, I hope you don't fuck it up. Cause that's still a lot of time. And I was like, well, it's a really weird comment. Like, why, like, why is he saying things like that to me? And then when he was cutting my hair, he started touching my leg, which has like nothing to do with where my hair is. And he was like telling me, cause I have a dog and he was like, it's just like petting a dog or something. And I was like, I didn't, it's again, this is like n- knowing addiction and being in it and not knowing that it's, it's happening to you. 
like when he was touching my leg now looking back and I'm like, that was so fucking inappropriate. Yeah. But I still like, I still didn't do anything about it. I was just like, Oh, that's weird. And then let him finish cutting my hair. And then it was not until I got downstairs into my car. Cause on the way out again, he was like, don't fuck it up. And I was like, Oh, that's so weird. Like, I don't understand what just happened. Um, so I remember getting down into my car and being like, I, I, I think he just like crossed a lot of boundaries. Like he, that was like really inappropriate. And so I remember emailing my monitoring company and being, cause I was like, is he going to do something to my hair sample? Like, why was he saying like, are you going to fuck it up? And why was he touching me? Like there were so, so many weird things that happened. So ended up going through my monitoring company saying, I refuse to go to this guy anymore. He did X, Y, and Z. Um, and also wanted to email them too. Cause like, I, I was afraid he was going to do something with my hair. Like, I don't know. Cause I also remember one time he told me if I wanted to take X, Y, and Z drugs, they wouldn't show up on my drug screen the next day. Like, I was like, is he trying to get me busted? Like, oh, it's just, this is just anyways, not nothing that he should be talking to you about. So yeah, that was completely inappropriate. And I remember talking about it in some group meetings and it's actually happened to other people and they've come uh, forward about it too. So I don't really know what's happened in regards to that, but I hope, yeah, anybody listening just knows that that's not okay. That kind of thing. So for, for testing, my testing with my local guy was great. He was actually very nice. But the other two places that I had to get tested at were terrible experiences. It was just, again, very vulnerable. And the first time I had to get tested, it was a, a watched test. Uh, they had to they had to watch me pee in the cup. Like the door had to be open and they were standing there. And I was like, this is, this is crazy. Like, <laughs> Okay. So these are called witnessed urines uh, for people who don't know. Uh, I... I was operating under the impression uh, just until a couple of weeks ago that these were always done. Or they were rarely done uh, to outpatients. Like if you're in the monitoring program after treatment, uh, I didn't even know they were still doing this, but apparently they're doing them. And uh, are, are you saying that the, the per, was the person who did the, the witness test for you at least a female? Yes. Yeah. And it was, okay. it was in the IME office. Okay. It was with the IME uh, person. So my IME uh, physician was a male and there was a female in the office that stood there. I, yeah. I don't even know if she was looking at me because I was looking down being like, this is, this is humiliating. Like this is, yeah, I don't yeah. even know how, how I was able to pee, but. Just yeah. for people, uh, just so you know what, what they're asking for, the, the protocol is you pull down your pants you lift up your shirt and you do a spin and we're talking all your clothes are removed and that that has happened is happening still with uh, people who are of opposite genders. Like I, I can't wrap my head around how that's going on and nobody's suing anybody. Um, even the fact that, I mean, if you, you take a second to think about what, what that's like, I mean, I have a, the way I'm designed, I can't, I got a shy bladder. I all through uh, treatment when they sent, uh, sent me to Homewood, I couldn't, they wanted a witness urine. And I told them right up from the beginning, it's not going to happen. You're going to be standing there for hours and hours. Like I just can't do it if you're going to stare at me like that. And uh, so eventually they just, uh, they let me go and they uh, made a note on my report at the end or whatever. But I just, it, it's such a, it's such an unnecessary uh, further shame promoting. I, I just, I don't understand why 
you know, if they're, if they're that worried about somebody who's in a, a program such as yourself, where you, you never had any false positives, you never stepped out of line, you, you're fine the whole time. But even if you did, is that appropriate at all? I don't think so. I don't you know? think so. It's violating I mean, some kind of human right somewhere. It, like yes, it is. Yeah. And that needs to stop. So you've got, um, you've got someone who's in a position of power just inherently because you've got someone who's having to prove their sobriety to their employer and to their union, et cetera. So you've got the person who's on that receiving end there. There is a power imbalance there. Huge. And huge. And in today's day and age, Cassidy, I'm sure you've had to take trauma informed practice in services um, this is a, a really sort of a hot issue within healthcare that we, that you were to come, you know, come into your interactions with all individuals through the lens that, that they have lived experience and things that affected them and trauma or, or not necessarily, but it's the understanding that you don't know what that person is coming from. And so you want to move, move forward with them in the most sort of um, understanding empathetic way possible. And certainly not in a way that would be, would be triggering or jarring. Yeah. And, and so for this organization to be conducting themselves in that manner with a population with addictive behavior, it's appalling. I am, I, I just, I'm sort of at a loss for words. And I think our listeners will be too. It's just um, stunning that there was that level of, of negligence and worse. It's, there's, it's there's worse. Yes. Yeah. I obviously, you know, we, we can't, uh, we were choosing not to discuss the wilder stuff that's that's been going on out there, but people should be aware that this is happening. This could happen to you, and it shouldn't be happening to anybody. It's a human rights violation. Good for you for emailing company yes. and at least uh, expressing that you're, yes. you're uncomfortable with you know and uncomfortable with your potential test results. Yes, um, thank you because that takes courage when you, you know you you don't know how that's going to go either. You know, any complaining can be seen as relapse behavior and you, you just never know, but you had the courage to do it because you knew it was the right thing to do. And thank you for doing that. Yeah. Good point, Corey. Cassidy, what was it like to date while you're on a monitoring contract? Interesting question. I, uh, <laughs> I did. <laughs> kind of, it talked about that. I was in a relationship going into the monitoring program. That relationship ended and I, into the relate into the program, it was a it was a healthy breakup. It was fine, just you know, distance and lifestyle changes just wasn't compatible. Um, we still talk, actually. He's a good guy, but um, it, I dated two other people. I'd say like I dated a little bit, and then I had two kind of relationships during the the program. It was oddly enough the first person I dated. It was super weird. He is a non drinker. He's never drank it in his entire life super weird i know it's so so random <laughs> but it's it's funny because when you are dating somebody in your head you're like they're not gonna like me i don't drink what do you do what do people do other than drink are you supposed to go to a brewery i don't know what you're supposed to do overthinking all that shame all that inadequacy and then you tell someone you don't drink and they're like oh cool let's go do this and you're like okay <laughs> guess it's <laughs> not that big of a deal or i found some people i would be they, you know they'd dating apps or whatever and they'd be like oh do you want to go for a drink and I'm like well I actually don't drink and they're like oh I should probably take a break from drinking too like it was it wasn't I feel like for me I had shame but then as soon as you were honest and you talked about it 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 wasn't an issue but uh yeah so I've dated those couple people and it was it was fine um, 
I don't know. It wasn't, I feel like it was more me thinking it was going to be hard than it actually was. Cause if you were honest about it and someone was like, that's stupid, well then clearly it's not going to work. So just, I find just being honest about it and just talking is hard, but I mean, what else, what else are you going to do? Yeah, maybe it's, uh, I mean, I, I found that uh, throughout that period, it was, uh, it, it kind of got a lot of the nonsense out of the way right away because you're, you know, like, you know, I can't, uh, this is my situation because I was very open about why I, I couldn't uh, drink during that period of time. And I just, I was like, yeah, if you're not, you don't want to hang out and that's uh, that's a deal breaker for you. That's no problem. Like, uh, you know, I, I understand. Kudos to you. Kudos to you. I was like, oh, I don't drink. That's it. Like there was like, <laughs> you, you got to become real close to me for me to start talking about my vulnerabilities. Cause it was like, <laughs> That was not not my opener at all. Like it was, uh, it, was uh, de- it was down the down the road, like not too far down the road. Like if we went on a couple of dates, I was like, sure, but it was definitely not a nice breaker. Mm. It's it it too, it was too raw for me. Like it was too. I just felt, yeah, it was too, it was too, too vulnerable for me for for strangers. But like, kudos for you because it it's it would have brushed a lot of more ice off the table because it is. Yeah, if you can be that vulnerable, someone will be vulnerable back to you, which is something I've learned and really take. Um, yes, it's a, yes. Uh, yeah, it's something that I have been working on for a long time, and I there is a power to it in that it it frees your mind, and what it does is it gives the other person an opportunity to meet you at that level right away, and if they choose to, then it's like wow, that's impressive, kind of like a, the the first little bond is strong, you know, and you can yeah. actually work quite nicely off that. And if they don't, then you've learned something about where that person's at as well, which is, you know, they're, that's not their, that's not what they're doing now. And that's totally cool. But uh, I also found I was, I was very surprised by how supportive people were in comparison to what I had going on in my head. I thought, yeah, I, I, I was just shocked. First of all, I needed to learn that most people don't give a shit what other people are doing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> They're a hundred percent invested in their own stuff. You are not even a blip on the radar unless you're really doing something crazy. But for the people who do pay attention to you and, and uh, even when we make mistakes, people can be very forgiving, you know, and um, it was, it was quite uh, eye opener in that respect. I actually have a note that says we're very self, like because I wrote a couple of notes. I was like um, very very self centered, and we tend to think people are going to think a lot about you, but they they honestly don't end up really caring. They're just like they hear it, it's gone. You know, they're kind of more invested in what's going on in themselves. And it's like unless you said something super crazy, but the mm-hmm. fact that you don't drink or that you don't you know use recreational drugs is it's pretty common. So it's like the the more you talk about it, the more people you're going to find that are either share the same values or like intrigued on why you have those values. But other than that, there's like rarely ever any judgment passed and like you kind of said if there was any judgment passed then you kind of know you're not on the same playing field so it's not going to work yes. anyways mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah easier said than done because when you're in the dating scene like if that shame's still there and it's still strong like it's still talking about it now seems easy but i definitely can remember it not being that easy so yeah yeah I just, I think it's interesting to to get your perspective because you really, you stood out or have stood out throughout this entire process in that you, you really didn't let much slow you down. Like even when you were having trouble with monitoring stuff, you really made sure that you were still doing the things that you like to do. You, you were still meeting people. You were still getting out there and having fun with your dogs. You traveled more than most people do. 
you know, in the last three years, you've been to places that more places than most people probably will ever go. And I admired that. Uh, I still do admire that. I think that's uh, that's a commitment to uh, your mental health right there. That was one of the more frustrating things I found with the monitoring contract is, you know, they shove you into this box that says this is what's going to keep you sober. When in fact, they're trying to do everything in their power to make you live a specific lifestyle that might not condone your lifestyle, which like my lifestyle and my sanity came from adventuring, came from, you know, doing all of these things. But this contract was really trying to stop me from doing all those things. And I, I had to fight tooth and nail to try and do the things that kept me healthy. And because they wanted me to live this one track path that is like, you log in every morning, you have to go to this facility at this time. And it's, you know, you have to come to this amount of meetings every month. There was not a lot of room for for breathing in that contract. And it, it was frustrating. And for someone like, I'm a pretty strong person, and I can stand up for what I believe in. But for somebody that maybe falls a little bit more on, on the softer side, this program will break you. Mm. will literally break you like it does not allow a lot of room for growth or independence or anything which first also for some people will need that coming out of uh and you know wherever they're coming out from a hundred percent people need to be guided and need this structure so i get it could work for some people but yeah. for the majority of people it's it's not gonna work like it it it, it will work but it, it is challenging like it is very it was challenging mm-hmm. And what you did there, it it comes back to our conversation that Nathan and I have had a number of times about our hierarchy of values and that you found a way to put those things that were important to you first. And But is it uphill? Absolutely. And are you up against a pretty big force to try to keep your own value system in line and like do the things that are true to you? Big time. But for our listeners and for someone who's... Um, just starting to go through it, I hope that that's something that they hear is that it can be done. Mm -hmm. It can be done. So I really commend you for that. It can be. And yes, I do want to touch on it is. I don't want to make the program seem awful and terrible and that it's like not doable because it is. And I, I was able to do it and I was able to still do the things I love and I was still able to date and I was still able to go adventuring. Um, so there, there is, it is possible. You just, you just got to want it and make it happen. And, and you can, and, and I did, and I finished the program. So it is possible. I just, I don't want to create this like dark black cloud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, the, the, is, the, the dark black cloud is already there for, yeah. for anyone who knows it and it, it experience, has yeah. experienced it. Yeah. For sure. yeah, yeah. So you're, you're kind of, we're kind of talking about it already, but can you think of any other advice that you'd give to someone who's just starting out Maybe they're at day zero or day one and they think, well, how am I going to navigate this? Uh, yeah, um, just breathe, honestly. It helps the most just to get through it. And the Caduceus group, <laughs> this is a shameless plug for Nathan, I swear. But that group helped me get through this program. Was what, just what, what? What's that group called? <laughs> it's the Caduceus group. <laughs> what's Obsidian, it called? Obsidian. <laughs> Obsidian support, I think, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Obsidian support. Yeah. It was honestly was the only good thing that came out of the program because I, I look back and I'm like, what would are things that I would change sometimes? And I, d- I don't know if I would change a whole lot, but like it was that that one group was able to like sh- give me resources to know that I wasn't alone and there are other healthcare professionals and you're able to vent and talk about things that are, sometimes aren't acceptable in other kind of group meetings. Um, Cause there's like a straight and narrow path. And then, 
just meeting like-minded people and knowing there's, I, I don't know, that was, yeah, that was one of the things that really helped me was the, the Obsidian support group meeting and just acceptance. God, I hated that saying when I went to treatment, acceptance is the answer, but honestly <laughs> it is sometimes. And if you want to get through this monitoring contract and you want to get back to bedside nursing and that's, that's your plan. It's a three-year contract. You're you're not going to get straight A's and get let out sooner. Like it's just not going to happen. So if you just kind of accept that and move forward, then it will get easier. There, you know, you can you can, you can you can do it. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that's I think that's kind of what helped get me through it. The days were hard. How often do you think you had to remind yourself? Uh, you know, how often did you have to give yourself that message of acceptance of the of your current situation or current circumstance? Uh, I mean, every day, because every day you had to check into monitoring and every morning was a reminder that you were in, you, you were in this contract, like you, every, every day you had to check in. So it was, it was a daily and sometimes more, more than once time a day. So it, it never went away. Like it, it didn't, it was daily, daily reminder. Yeah. That's a rough one. You know, I, my, I never had an experience like that by the way my program was set up. I just they didn't have the technology. It wasn't with the company that uh, you were with. And I've heard a lot now of, of people having trouble after they are released back into the wild where they have nightmares or they wake up or they, they, it's like they forgot to check in or something. And that happens for a little while and then it goes away. And I just, I don't like the idea of a monitoring company being inside somebody's head that much because our attention is valuable. And I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that a little bit more, but I'm sorry that they, uh, that you had to go through that. And I, I think monitoring has, there are real benefits to or being monitored, especially in situations like myself uh, or Corey was faced with where it, if you're going back into an environment where your drug of choice is there uh, and you don't even, you know, you don't want to be there in the first place. It's like a rat in the cage. Right. And it, it's, um, you really want to have that added protection there, but man, there's got to be some changes made here because it doesn't have to be like this. It shouldn't have to be like this. I, I definitely thought I was going to have those nightmares and wake up panicking thinking I haven't checked in. I think I was so ready for it to be done. I have not panicked or thought I had to check in a single time. I've been <laughs> out of the monitoring program for three weeks now. Not a single day. I've been like, shoot, I forgot. There are days I'm like, Frick, yes. Like I don't have to do it anymore, but I've, I never had the panic moments. And I, I have talked to some people that have had, like, you know, they did have them, but I thankfully it was done and it's, it's done, which is, I'm thankful for that. It's now, not to say it won't happen eventually. Can you imagine Cassidy, if I know you had trouble with maybe people who are new, they didn't understand the monitoring process, whatever you, you received phone calls sometimes that were not necessary and were stress inducing. I can remember you talking about receiving phone calls about things that you were supposed to do and you didn't. And you're like, what are you talking about? I did that already. And they're like, oh yeah, you did. Never mind. Uh, that kind of thing where it shoots your uh, blood pressure to the moon for no reason. What's going to happen if you get one of those calls like next week? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me, there was one, the, the amount of things that this program did to like a vulnerable population like the times they'd call me and threaten me that you know I'm using too much of the budget and I'd have to pay and I was like you shouldn't be talking to a vulnerable population no. like this like no this should not be talk this and I remember one other thing that were 
really big breach of confidentiality. One of my monitoring, when one of my monitoring contracts changed to another monitor, they sent my entire profile to some random person on the island and they emailed me being like, sorry, we sent your stuff to this person, but don't worry because they're a healthcare professional. And I was like, oh. I'm sorry, what? Like, wow. I don't care that they're a healthcare professional. Like, what if that was sent to somebody that knew me or somebody that knows of me or simply now all has all this information about me and my monitor and contract? Like, if if I made a boo-boo in my monitor, I would be like, oh, sorry, you know, no big deal. It was just once. I, I would be reprimanded highly. And then mm-hmm. they do something that is, a complete breach of confidentiality and it's just like oops sorry yeah, and that was it oh, I, I that was i was so mad i mean that's something that could act that could at the very least it, it could affect your ability to get a job down the down the road not that that's going to happen but it's the idea i think that the part of that that bothers me besides the obvious is that so often uh, employers, colleges, they all like to hide behind. Whenever you ask them for for information, they hide behind confidentiality all the time. Oh, no, we can't do that. It's a breach of confidentiality. The, the, even the way the monitoring contracts are written up, it's it's basically a free-for-all. But <laughs> then to have just uh, your your profile randomly sent to some, some person, I mean, that could have devastating consequences in many different ways in today's society beyond what are what would be the immediate psychological uh effects and just like just fundamentally like how we how we treat people mm. i mean whether you're vulnerable or not that people who are hurting can be treated with so flippantly with such disregard for experience or or pain and just that there's this um the willingness to make assumptions, the willingness to steamroll. And then, like you said, Nathan, to hide behind sort of uh, these sort of very thin veils, mm-hmm. like the veil about confident confidentiality or the veil of policy or the veil of precedence. Yeah. It, it's um, it's appalling. So I think it's really great to, to be able to expose some of this and, and help people understand what's really going on. I love it. So Cassidy, apart from maybe apart from the monitoring, piece because we could list just based on what you what you told us we can list a handful of things that we would want to change what else do you think you would change about about the machine so to speak yeah oh my gosh i feel like we've touched on quite a bit of it but just the negative connotation towards towards addiction or this umbrella term that fits everybody they put you into this box that if you don't pass you fail and it's like that's just not how it is in life like that's you know, I got signed with this three-year contract. And I think one of the things that I, I mean, I would like to see the whole thing go away, but I think one thing that I, I think would really help is reassess, like a reassessment. Like if you diagnose someone with diabetes and you give them a treatment plan of X, Y, and Z meds, you don't say, see you in three years. Like you see, I'm going to see in a little bit and see how this is working for you. Like maybe we'll Mm -hmm. make some adjustments. Like this program's 12 times a month meetings, two times, four times a month meetings with the monitor, daily check-ins for three years. And then nothing. Like you literally go from this hardcore daily monitoring structure, everything to nothing. Like, and maybe this program wasn't working for me. Like Maybe maybe mutual support group meetings were great for me in the beginning. And then maybe after six months, they weren't doing me any good. And they're actually creating a lot of tension and emotional damage. And I'm being forced to go to these meetings 
speaking personally, that now are not doing anything for me. And now I hate going to them, not your group, Nathan, other groups. They just weren't <laughs> working, but I was mm. still forced to do these things to check off these boxes when it's not necessarily working. Like I get needing to be sober. I get needing to create some kind of proof, but the way they go about it is just very belittling, very degrading. You feel very cancerous to society in this program. Like it's just, I don't, I, yeah, I don't, I've never felt so, yeah, like to be so vulnerable and feel like you're making a change to be told, I don't know, the program is terrible. Like it's, the machine is terrible. And the machine leans so heavily on the disease model and then every action they take defies that. And like you said, I, I, I love the way you said that, like the failure to reassess or the unwillingness to reassess and then just to sort of dismiss someone completely at the end of it. They're, they don't, the disease model is, that's not what they're operating on. It's a, it's a ruse. <laughs> it's a ruse. It's a charade. Literally, it is. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's what's required uh, for litigious reasons and insurance purposes. And that's about it. Yeah. But maybe it will get better. At least people will know, we hope, at least some uh, healthcare professionals will know a little bit more about what, what happens. And that's kind of the idea of what we're trying to do here. So um, thank you so much, Cassidy. Uh, you, you didn't have to put the effort in that you did today and, and we appreciate it. We feel it. And uh, the listeners will too. You really uh, opened up about uh, a lot of things there that are obviously important to yourself and uh, will be important to others. And I'm going to, everybody always tells me uh, when their contracts up and the, the cage opens and they fly away, they say, oh, don't worry. I'll come back once in a while. And I never see him again. <laughs> but hey, I look, you're seeing me now. <laughs> but I don't blame them. And uh, it's not exactly true because I, I still do see a couple of people and I hope you're one of them. Uh, you always, uh, you were a delightful a member of our groups and uh, yeah, we're going to miss you. But man, I'm happy you're through this. <laughs> and Cassie, you hold the, um, the esteemed ranking that of all, and I've done, more zoom meetings in the last two years than I ever could have imagined I would have done like thousands of just different things on zoom. And I, and you hold the longest distance of logging into, to zoom, like mm. the, literally the, uh, the end of the earth and Cassidy logged in from a tiny little mountain village and, uh, and joined our group. So that was your level of dedication was, was <laughs> apparent in that moment. Yeah. Quite, uh, quite impressive. Where was that again? Uh, Indonesia? In Nepal. 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 Right. Yeah. It was yeah. at the end of uh, one of the treks in Nepal. But that was, <laughs> yeah, I, that was the thing I had to take. They said, you can go, but you have to go to a certain amount of meetings. And I said, I'll try. <laughs> and that was me trying. <laughs> well, Cassidy, thanks again. Uh, your courage and your tenacity are inspiring to me. I'm, I know they will be inspiring to those who listen. And I just really commend you for what a strong survivor you you clearly are so thank you for sharing your story yes thank you for having me thank you and we will see everybody next time thanks for listening thank you guys see you soon Bye.